evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 11 on the War of the Jewels. And tonight we are going to begin with what we didn't quite get to last time, which is a discussion of the lost apocalypse at the end of the Silmarillion. Uh, and really thinking about, though, of course, we can't really solve the question of should it be there or not. Uh, so first... Uh, well, actually, no. Before, first, even before we get to that, uh, first a quick announcement because there's a really fun thing that is happening. Uh, two, indeed, fun things that are happening in the next 10 days or so. First is Maple Moot, which is happening at the very end of this very week, as is. Um, uh, this coming Saturday on the 20th of May, we, I will be in Toronto, uh, and we're going to have Maple Moot, our first ever Canadian moot. Going to be a lot of fun. Um, going to be a bunch of people there. Looking forward to meeting some new folks and seeing some old friends, as always, at Moots. Uh, if you're anywhere around Toronto or can get there and would like to join us, you still could. But, of course, it'd be even easier for you to join us from wherever you are. Uh, by signing up for the, 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 the hybrid version, the online version uh, of the Moot. Uh, so really, uh, I, I, I sort of advise uh, uh, you, know, you to, to, to look into that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, at this Moot, I'm going to be doing a sort of a version of my, um, uh, my discussion of Tolkien's development of a phono-aesthetic soundscape in uh, his prose in The Lord of the Rings. Um, so that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, anyway, so um, that's, um, that's what's happening this coming weekend. Um, <laughs> oh, man, Fanaro, you're going to be so close in Buffalo. Oh, wait, but I understand. That's pretty awesome. Uh, your, father, your father's ordination, that's a neat, uh, that's a neat thing to celebrate. Um, Anyway, you can just kind of wave at us across the border there. Uh, I'll be driving right through Buffalo, getting to it. Anyway, so um, uh, so that is uh, that is what is going on. Um, here's the other thing that's going on. So that's this coming weekend. Next weekend, the weekend after that, uh, there's going to be a fun event which is the May Showcase for Space. So we have so many cool new modules happening in space. So many different subjects that are being taught, languages, uh, philosophy, religion, fantasy literature, Tolkien stuff, all kinds of things going on in space. Creative writing, lots of creative writing stuff um, that we are doing a showcase, a, a day-long feature of many uh, of, many, uh, of our modules. Now, instead of just doing event where, we're, where we like invite the teachers to just like talk about it, we're going to do actual sessions. So uh, these are what we call space capsules, little half-hour sessions, which are real space classes. So we're going to have people signing up to participate in these uh, space modules. You're just going to be able to be in and get a fun little half-hour class. Um, uh, and then, of course, you can also... So you can, you can show up to just watch, or you can show up to participate. For now, uh, what we're doing is recruiting participants. So... Um, in, uh, in, in Blackberry here, and I'm posting the link to, uh, um, uh, to, uh, to the Blackberry announcement page here, um, in, uh, a few different places for the live folks who are watching live. Um, 
so if you, you come to this, this announcement page, you can see there's a register. First of all, you can see down towards the bottom the list of all the different capsules that we're running. Uh, they start at 10 a.m. Eastern time and go through uh, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Um, all kinds of stuff. You can uh, look at the history of Middle Earth, uh, some of the stuff that we talked about a while back, which would be really fun, especially if you missed those classes live. Um, the history of Middle Earth before the War of the Rings. Uh, from 10 to 10.30 with James Tauber. Uh, we're having more Tolkien stuff. New Better Do Better uh, uh, of TikTok fame uh, is going to be doing a capsule on the realm of Arnor, looking at the, the, the early history of the Third Age. We're going to have some other fantasy wit represented, doing a, a little capsule on Dune, a capsule on H.P. Lovecraft. Um, we're also going to be doing a bunch of other things, like a brief overview of the Japanese weird, which will be a really, really fun session. Uh, beginning, uh, if you want to begin learning uh, Japanese, the Japanese language, um, we're going to be looking. If you want to, if you've ever wanted to learn the IPA, the International Phonetic Alphabet, uh, if you want to learn more about uh, Ubuntu. Uh, uh, the uh, human connections and interpersonal relationships in African philosophy, all kinds of fun stuff that's going on there and creative writing as well. As I said, we've got uh, several creative writing sessions that are going on in the afternoon. Um, so anyway, all these things that are happening, what you can do, if you click on the link to the registration form, you can basically choose any or indeed all of these capsules to take part of if, uh, to take part in if you would like there's you know there's no charge or anything to be this is just wanting to give people a chance to uh, you know take some time to discover these things um, I will be talking next week uh, making sure to share with you the uh, the link to be able to attend the sessions if you just want to sort of spectate and uh, and kind of take it in and see what it's like from a one step sort of further removed. But if you ever wanted to be involved, if you want to be, so all of these will have, you know, one of our space faculty running the discussion and real live students such as it, like it might be you, um, uh, participating in these discussions. So just wanted to, this, so this is going to be, as I say, it's, it's the 27th, Saturday, the 27th of May. So a week and a half from now. Um, and, uh, it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. If you have any questions, send an email to space at signumu.org and uh, uh, our space team will happily answer your questions and uh, get you what you would like to see. So there we are. All right. Um, now, before we get back to the text, I want to make sure everybody remembers the lost apocalypse that I'm talking about, um, because we're not going to look at the whole text of that, because we already talked about the text before, and one of the interesting things that we're looking at here in this passage in the War of the Jewels is that there isn't a whole lot of change uh, to this text. Um, that is in some ways disappointing, and in some ways very interesting. So, the lost apocalypse is, you may remember this, uh, from the uh, the Lost Road, the other green book that you can almost, oh, you can't see, you can only see through it a little bit when I hold it up. Um, uh, the Lost Road, Volume 5 uh, of the History of Middle-Earth. Um, that's where you can find the 1937 Quintus Silmarillion that I've been referring back to uh, throughout this whole section when we've been looking at the later Quinta, his revision of that 1937 Quintus Silmarillion. At the end of that, he doesn't get to the end of it. He gets as far as the Turin story, skips all the rest, and jumps. So he, on the one hand, you could say he stops, right? He doesn't finish revising, but he does one thing, and that is he jumps to the end, and he writes an ending for the Quintus Silmarillion. 
Um, and in the ending of the Quintus Silmarillion, several unusual things happen. This is the account, the only account that there is, uh, of the Dagor Dagoroth, the, the last battle. And one of the very remarkable things that occurs in the last battle is that Turin Turimbar returns from the dead with his black sword, also implicitly <laughs> returned from the dead. And um, Turin, with his black sword, slays Morgoth himself at the end of days, uh, and Morgoth dies. At which point, the Silmarils are recovered, given back to Feanor, who's let out of Mandos. Feanor gives them up to Yavanna, like he didn't do before. The Silmarils are broken, their light released, the two trees return to life, and everybody's happy. Um, and I know, I'm sure I made this comparison years ago when we talked about this, uh, uh, when we talked about that passage in our discussion of the Lost Road. Um, but the, the ending of that story always sounds to me like um, the, what Sam says when he wakes up. James, that's exactly, James is just quoting the same thing. Um, that um, when, when Sam wakes up and says, is everything sad going to come untrue, right? And of course, it's not so. And the, uh, that is, it's not so in most of Tolkien's stories, right? It's not so for Sam, right? You know, Sam for a moment, because remember he, that he says it when he sees Gandalf again. Right. And he, as far as he knew, Gandalf was dead. And now Gandalf is undead. No, wait, that's not quite right. Um, anyway, <laughs> Gandalf's alive again. Right. Like, so, you know, he's he's been unkilled uh, and is now alive. And so that prompts Sam to say, uh, is everything uh, is everything sad going to come untrue? But of course, that's a brief moment at the end of The Lord of the Rings. And it's very much overtaken by the fact that the uh, the whole end of the story, well, I won't say the whole end of the story, but the story ends in sadness, right? Um, the the corresponding moment to when Sam is marveling and wondering up in the, on the field of Cormallon, um, you know, asking if everything sad is going to come untrue, is the moment when he's talking when Frodo is explaining about that he's going to the Havens, uh, and that, uh, and, and Sam says, you know, I, I thought you were going to enjoy the Shire for years and years. Um, and, uh, and Frodo has to explain the Shire has been saved, but not for me. Right. So, um, why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because the, that little apocalypse at the end of, um, at the end of the Quenta, the 1937 Quenta, always struck me as really weird. Really weird because it's one of the only places in any of Tolkien's writings. I mean, like, not just one of the only places in the Legendarium, but one of the only places in any of the stories that he wrote at all. Like, even the, you know, the non-Legendarium stories. In which we get that kind of... Um, almost deus ex machina-esque, and then the wand was waved, and everything sad came untrue, and everybody lived happily ever after, right? Um, Tolkien tends not to do that in the stories that he is. Fond as he was of the uh, the framing 
tag and they lived happily ever after. He defends that uh, in Unfairy Stories. He doesn't deploy it very much himself, right? Um, but um, but anyway, he um, in this moment seems to have indulged in this vision of perfect peace, which also, by the way, is in significant contradiction to some of the later conceptions, like some of the stuff that we were looking at in Morgoth's Ring, about what's going to happen after the end of the world, right? Thinking in particular about the stuff in the Atherbeth, um, and this vision of what Arda Remade could look like, and what the role of the uh, children of Iluvatar might be in that world, both for the benefit of that world and for the benefit of each other. Thinking about, again... Um, uh, Andreth and Finrod's conversation about the relations between humans and elves, both in Arda Marred now and in Arda Remade later on. Um, yeah, so JJ, the later version, right, like the Atherbeth version, is quite like a new heaven and a new earth in which every tear will be wiped away, right? Um, the difference with the the lost apocalypse, right? The difference with that little apocalyptic glimpse at the end of the old of the thirty seven quinto is that it's not even a new heaven and new earth. It's the old heaven and the un it's like the, the the evil that has been done gets undone. Right? It's um it's not art remade. It's art healed, but healed so perfectly that you can like barely even tell that it had ever been wounded in the first place. And again, that strikes me, always struck me, as being very strange, very unlike almost every other story um, that uh, that Tolkien tells. I mean, in pointed contrast to the end of The Lord of the Rings, right? Where, despite the fact that it was a happy ending, not only that the story was a happy ending in that the bad guy lost and the good guys won and peace was restored and the Shire was saved. But even thinking about Sam's words on the stairs of Kirith Ungol, when he was talking about whether it's going to be a, a happy ending or sad ending from the perspective of the characters, right? Um, in other words, are they going to live or die uh, is kind of what he's talking about there on the stairs of Kirith Ungol, right? Um, so even from that perspective, it looks like it's been a happy ending. Frodo and Sam do both survive and they do both peacefully return home and find comfort and happiness, apparently, right? And yet, um, it doesn't sit there, right? It doesn't just become a happily ever after. And the very reason it doesn't become a happily ever after is that some wounds can't easily be healed. That although good has prevailed, and joy has come, and growth and healing and everything, all, all good things have come, and yet... The evil that was, the suffering that was, remains real and has impact. And if there is going to be, when we know there is going to be, right, growth and happiness and joy after that, it's going to be drawing on that, right? It's going to be growing out of that soil, not just wiping it away, forgetting about it, right, as if it never were. And um, the end that end of the... Now, I'm simplifying, of course. There's much more that could be said, um, and I'm sure we did spend at least one entire session talking about that, those passages. Um, 
<clears throat> the you know that ending for the Silmarillion that he does. But I'm I wanted to emphasize the way in which that always seemed to me uh, to be an oddly kind of discordant um, passage in Tolkien's Legendarium. Um, it's funny almost even to call it discordant because it's so... What makes it discordant is how euphonious and like because of the the absence of any sour notes right is what makes it is what makes it uh, uh discordant in some ways um but um at that time christopher uh in volume five says this conception of the end of the history of middle earth you know the end of the history of arda seems to have been abandoned by my father at this point um, that he does not return to this thing. Um, and I've been saying that now for a while because, as I confessed last time, I forgot about the passage we're going to be looking at some selections from today here at the end of uh, the later Silmarillion edition, uh, the later Quintus Silmarillion revisions um, in the late 50s that he's describing here in the War of the Jewels. Um buried at the end of that section and with no attention drawn to it by subject headings or anything like that, so you'll miss it if you're skimming, um, is Christopher's discussion of the revision history of the end of the um, of, of that passage at the end of the Quinta. So let's look at some of that now. Okay. So here's Christopher describing the end of the Quinta. With chapter 17, the beginning of the story of Turin, my father abandoned in December 1937. So he's talking about when he was writing the, 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 the Quintus Silmarillion originally, um, which, remember, was itself a revision of the Quentin Ilderinwa from 1930, which was itself a development of the sketch of the mythology that he wrote in 1928. So um, the, you know, the, at the end of that progression in 1937, um, he abandoned the writing of the continuous Quintus Silmarillion. So... Keep in mind, then, everything from the Turin story onwards, chronologically, right, um, uh, that includes most notably the fall of Gondolin and the story of Arendel, right, all of that stuff, he didn't return to in 1937. So the only, the, or the latest, rather, full version of those stories was from the 1930 Quentin Alderinwa. That's why the text that is used in the published Silmarillion, the text for the fall of Gondolin that is used in the Quintus Silmarillion is almost all drawn from the 1930 Quintus Silmarillion. It's a really, really old version of the story, like two, at least, you know, two major revisions back from what we've been reading and what we've been talking about here, right? Because he never got to it again. He abandons it. In 1937, he abandoned the Silmarillion at the beginning of the story of Turin and never went back. Um, he had made no changes to the chapter when the last typescript of the LQ, that's the later Quintus Silmarillion of 1937, uh, uh, when, the, uh, when the last typescript of the LQ1 series was taken from it. And this text he never touched. In this case, he did indeed return later to the manuscript, making many additions and corrections and rejecting the whole latter part of the chapter, um, the latter chapter of 17. But this is best regarded. So, so okay. So again, you follow what he's saying. He's saying, um, 
Tolkien, in 1957, 58, when he's doing the revision of the Quenta, what he is tending to do, um, as we've been noting in several passages, is making comments and additions to the typescript. So he wrote by hand the 1937 Quenta Silmarillion. In the meantime, like during the 15 to 20 years that pass between that time and when he comes back to it, um, he had a, type, a typescript made of it. And uh, that's what LQ1 and LQ2, two different typescripts. Um, and it's that typescript that he's revising. He's going back and making notes. So most of the things that we've been looking at have been uh, notes that he's written on the typescript to the Quintus Silmarillion. Christopher argues that basically he, he, he never went back to the typescript again in this whole section. Then he's saying, like, then he's admitting, okay, in chapter 17, there are a bunch of changes. But he's arguing, uh, he says, but this is best regarded, that, that revision work is best regarded as an aspect of the vast, unfinished work on the saga of Turin that engaged him during the 1950s, from which no briefer telling, suitable in scale to the Quintus Silmarillion, ever emerged. LQ2, the other typescript, was again a simple copy of LQ1, by that time altogether obsolete. Okay, so you see what he's saying? What he's talking about is what was Tolkien's approach to the Quenta? And he's arguing here that although the manuscript of the 1937 Quenta Silmarillion has a bunch of later corrections to it, this is not a sign that Tolkien was, in fact, going back to the Quenta and revising it with a plan to complete, to continue uh, writing the Quenta Silmarillion from where he abandoned it in 1937. What Christopher is arguing is that Tolkien never returned to the Quenta Silmarillion with any obvious intention to continue it further from here. We've seen how he's been revising the Quenta Silmarillion in parallel with the Grey Annals, right? So we have the Grey Annals, and we have the later Quenta, and he's been revising the later Quenta, and we've looked at a couple of examples of times where it seems that there's some evidence that he still intended them to be separate and parallel texts, right? I, I, he, that he did want to, he, you know, he wasn't choosing between the two. Um, even though the one thing that seems very clear is that the Annals was the one that was expanding, um, the, the Grey Annals becomes a, a significantly expanded version of the story compared to the Annals of Beleriand that he had begun before. So while the, 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 the Annals side, right, of the two historical texts, like two historical overview texts that he had, the Annals and the Quenta, the Annals was growing and growing, and the Quenta was not. It was just getting touched up as he went along. The touch-ups themselves... In the, especially for the sort of earliest, earlier chapters, seem to suggest that he was planning to maintain them as two separate and parallel historical overview texts. He wanted the Quenta and he wanted the Annals. Um, but again, it's clear where the sort of the focus had come to be. Christopher here argues, although there is that evidence that he was revising the Quenta and, and, and sort of continuing to think of it as an important text, if you'd asked him in, you know, 1957 describe what the, the Silmarillion is going to look like when you finish it for publication, uh, it sounds like he would have said, well, there'll be the Annals, of course, and then also the Quenta, Silmarillion, of course. Um, that was the form that he was explicitly imagining in 1937, and it seems to be 
um, uh, it seems to be the way that he is still thinking about it most of the time, based on Christopher's conclusions, uh, it is still the way he's thinking about it most of the time here in 1957. But again, what Christopher argues here is that Tolkien has abandoned it. He did abandon it in 1937. He never wrote past the Turin story, and there is no evidence that he did continue or was even planning to continue past the Turin story. Instead, what happens? Why does he abandon it at the Turin story? And if he's if he is abandoning it, why is there all why are there all these notes on the manuscript about how to revise it? And Christopher says it's not because he's planning to continue the Quenta, or even primarily to revise chapter 17 of the Quenta, but rather because Tolkien in the 1950s, both early and late, is getting all wrapped up in this project of continuing, of, of telling a fuller version of the Turin story. Um, the detailed, the more detailed version, the, um, the Children of Hurin, I mean, I'm speaking now to the modern publications, um, the Children of Hurin version of the Turin story, the full novel length version of it, right? Um, all that extra stuff that is added to the text that was published in the published Silmarillion, right? So the short version, uh, still the longest story in the published Silmarillion, but nevertheless, the shorter version of the Turin story that we get in the published Silmarillion. And then we get all that added stuff, right? Which, when you put it all together, as Christopher did in The Children of Hurin, um, all of this stuff, uh, like all of that extra stuff, right, makes it into a full novel-length version. That's what Christopher's talking about when he talks about the saga of Turin. When Tolkien sat down in 1950-51 to say, like, I'm going to take the story of Turin and I'm going to make this into a real story, right? A full story. Um, I'm going to really dig into that tale and tell it in full. Um, that was the time, Christopher argues, in which Tolkien went back and he was drawing on chapter 17 of the 1937 Quenta. But he wanted to, you know, he was making notes not for the revision of that text itself, but to build on, to write the larger, later text that he's going on to do. And not only is he going to go on and tell the longer story um, uh, of Turin, but he's also going to tell the longer story of what happens after the Turin story. Right? The Children of Hurin ends, pretty much ends, at the tombstone. Right? The tombstone of Turin and Neonor, um, and the death of Morwen. Um, and, but he wasn't done, right? Tolkien wasn't done. And he continued the saga uh, into the wanderings of Hurin, which is what we are transitioning towards. Okay, so that's where we are at the end of the Quenta. Now, but the apocalypse. Um, okay, no, wait, before we get to the apocalypse. Here's Christopher's assessment of the whole thing. In these versions, my father was drawing on, while also, of course, continually developing and extending, long works that already existed in prose and verse. And in the Quintus Silmarillion, he perfected that characteristic tone, melodious, grave, elegiac, burdened with a sense of loss and distance in time, which resides partly, as I believe, in the literary fact that he was drawing down into a brief compendious history what he could also see in far more detailed, immediate, and dramatic form. With the completion of the great intrusion 
and departure of the Lord of the Rings. It seems that he returned to the Elder Days with a desire to take up again the far more ample scale with which, with which he had begun long before in the Book of Lost Tales. The completion of the Quintus Omerillion remained an aim, but the great tales vastly developed from their original forms, from which its later chapters should be derived, were never achieved. Okay. Um, so, I, uh, I mostly agree with Christopher. There's one little footnote that I would make where I disagree with him here, but... Um, uh, okay. First of all, uh, first notice the... Notice what Christopher suggests here about the um, origins of the Quenta Silmarillion, right? Um, all the cool things about the Quenta Silmarillion, Christopher says, um, reside partly in the literary fact that he was drawing down into a brief compendious history what he could also see in far more detailed, immediate and dramatic form. Um, he is not... So it, it's possible to look at the development of the Silmarillion history, especially if we start in 1928. Right, 1928, he starts doing a plot summary, sketch of the mythology. I've, I've been over this, I know, but real quick review, right? 1928 does this, this, this sketch of the mythology, expands it in 1930 into the Quentin Older Inwa, revises it in 1937 uh, into the Quentin Silmarillion, and also the 1937 Quenta Silmarillion, and also shoots out from it the parallel text of the Annals, right? Where the story seems to develop even more, right? And then as he keeps going, the Annals keep developing more and more, and the, and the, the, the Quentin Silmarillion trails off. As we have talked about before, you can look at that and say, okay, we can see what direction the wind is blowing, right? What began as plot summary and then became longer and more detailed plot summary now is growing into real stories. And Tolkien is ditching the old, you know, the crabbed old restrictive plot summary mechanism, which kind of got him here, but he doesn't need anymore. Right? That would be one way to look at the, that overall trend and read that. But Christopher does not, in fact, read it that way. Yes, Scott, this is describing the perfection of the plot summary genre that I often speak of. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Because, see, Christopher's argument is not that the plot summary genre is just a means to an end, right? Uh, the thing that kind of kicked off the storytelling again and, and took it up to a new level and served, therefore, as like the seedbed out of which grew the better, bigger stories, right? Like the annals, the, the, the fuller versions of the stories in the annals. Not to mention things like the later Turin saga and the later um, uh, Tuor saga that he didn't finish or come close to finishing. That kind of thing, right? Um, you could see even some of the later Baron and Luthien material. So anyway, you could, you could say that that stuff is... Um, uh, you, could, you, you could think of it that way. But Christopher does not think of it that way, right? Um, and notice what he points out. Um, that version of the history where you see he starts with a plot summary, expands the plot summary, and then grows it into real stories, right? Um, you know, like Pinocchio becoming a real boy. Um, that version of the literary history is one that starts in 1928. Christopher's like, no, 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 no. Look back further, right? 
it starts with the Book of Lost Tales, where the stories are already much fuller, right? And then develops into the alliterative children of Hurin and the Lay of Lathian, right? Longer, more detailed, more full treatments, more detailed, immediate, and dramatic treatments of two of the great tales, right? So he's got, he's, so he's, and now he's got all that stuff. And from the vantage point where he's looking back on all that material, he starts writing plot summaries and then begins perfecting that plot summary genre. So Christopher argues that the plot summary stuff, the Quintus Silmarillion stuff, is not the raw material from which the later, fuller, better stories are drawn, right? Instead, he says, um, he characterizes the tone and sort of perspective of the Quintus Silmarillion as being informed by, like, it deliberately and effectively adopted because he'd already done that other work. Because he had already done it. So it's not, it's not that these stories are spontaneously growing out of the inferior thing, which is the Quenta. But rather the Quenta is like the mature reflection upon those things that he's already done. Um, and you can see how Christopher loves it, right? That characteristic tone, melodious, grave, elegiac, burdened with a sense of loss and distance in time. Right? This is how he characterizes the style and effectiveness of the Quintus Omerillion. Um And, of course, by the way, um, that's, uh, uh, that's something which has struck very many readers. Right, um, Many readers of the Silmarillion have come away from it appreciating exactly those kinds of things. Right, um, That you know, melodious, grave, elegiac, burdened with a sense of loss and distance in time. Yeah, absolutely. Pure gravitas, Scott. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, 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 I don't think he's wrong about that. Um, and I do think that if we were to look at the plot summary genre, the Quintus Silmarillion, only as this sort of raw material, right? This, this kind of sketch upon which the fuller, you know, paintings of the later stories, the later fuller stories are made. That would be inaccurate. The very fact that Tolkien himself quite explicitly in the 1937 stuff, and even it seems in the later 1950s stuff, saw the Quintus Silmarillion as surviving. Like, it has a role. It's not just some kind of rough draft or, or, or you know, again, like, a, you know, painter's sketch um, that, you know, is going to get discarded once the painting itself is done, right? It's not like that at all. It's a parallel text. You know, you have the 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 the, the Silmarillion material, the the what he wanted to publish contained the Quenta and it contained the annals and it, you know, heck, he would have thrown in the Lay of Lathian and the Alliterative Children of Hurin and everything else with it if he could. Uh, not to mention, you know, the Embarcanta and the Akalabeth and and uh, uh, the Ainuindale and all this stuff. Um the Hlamas, the Tree of Tongues. Um, so it was one, it was, it, was, it was a different but equal piece, right? So I completely agree with that. Um, I also am... This passage also seems to me to answer another question. Um, notice... Notice what Christopher... This, 
this passage, this paragraph to me explains the format of the published Silmarillion. Um, we've been looking at the text of the Grey Annals and the later revisions to the Quintus Silmarillion. And we've been noticing again and again, where is it that we were seeing, you know, and this is the full text of that whole section of the Quintus, of, of the, you know, of the, um, the published Silmarillion, right? Mostly, not exclusively, but mostly in the annals, right? A very great deal of the text of the published Silmarillion is drawn straight out of the annals, either the Grey Annals or the Annals of Amman. Um, that uh, we were looking at in the uh, in, in Morgoth's ring. Um, so Christopher, when he does his final edits, he does not do it in the way that his father had envisioned, because there's not enough stuff. There's not enough to do both. He can't give the Quintus Silmarillion and the Annals altogether because there's not enough. He's got to pick and choose, right? That he would do it the way that he did, um, taking the the most finished bits from both of those texts and combining them into one text, that seems a very, very logical way to proceed. I'm totally on board with his choice to take these two texts, and there's more than just the two, the Annals and the, uh, and the, and the Quinta, but just to think about that for now for a second. Um, it, he, took, he takes these two texts and he, you know, extracts, he, he, he synthesizes them, basically, right, uh, into one big text. One final text. And then what form does he put it in? What's in the, uh, you know, what's in the table of contents in the published Silmarillion? He calls it the Quintus Silmarillion, right? Um, you know how there are lots of places in the published Silmarillion where it'll go on for a few paragraphs Sounding, sounding like it's, uh, you know, what in discussions of the Silmarillion I've said in the past sounds like you're looking down from like 10,000 feet, right? And then all of a sudden, two paragraphs later, the narrative will like whoosh down and suddenly we're getting dialogue and we're right there, right, with uh, with the characters and everything and it, that the framework has totally changed um, without any external structural change, right, of the narrative that we get in the published Silmarillion. Well, most of the time that's coming from when he's transitioning from a Quintus Silmarillion passage to an Annals passage. Um, and as we see, there's a whole bunch of Annals passages there. But at the end of the day, Christopher decided that the structure he wanted to give it, he wanted to call it that big, huge section in the middle. Um, he could have gone either way, he, but he chose. He wanted to call it the Quintus Silmarillion. And I think we can begin to see why. He loves the Quintus Silmarillion. Um, there are several places where I think that, um, and again, keep in mind, this is not a, a criticism. Like, I'm not saying that I think, you know, like the job Christopher did is a bad job or that it's, you know, doesn't read well or anything like that. I'm not saying anything, uh, you know, that I, that I don't like it. What I'm saying is he's created this hybrid document, but he has squeezed it into the format of the one that he really liked, right? The Quintus Silmarillion. Um, in when he went to put together and publish 
a final, you know, publishable version of his father's writings. He chose on his father's behalf the Quintus Silmarillion as the formal structure that he was going to give it, right? Um, and I think, I think that he shows several, there are several um, moments where Christopher kind of tips his hand a little bit here and shows, I think that he, hmm, this might be too strong, but he's, there are moments where he sounds to me almost as if he is disappointed that his fa- I think and this is one of them, disappointed that his father didn't finish the Quintus Silmarillion. Um, what does Tolkien do instead? From this point onwards, he spends the rest of his time doing four versions. In fact, Tolkien was transitioning from a far more detailed, from the melodious grave elegiac one to the more detailed, immediate, and dramatic form. My little quibble, uh, Scott, is that I th- Christopher connects that, right? With the completion of the great intrusion, that is, you know, writing The Lord of the Rings, kind of interrupted the whole Silmarillion process, um, and the departure of The Lord of the Rings, it seems that he returned to the Elder Days, with a desire to take up again the far more ample scale with which he had begun long before in the Book of Lost Tales. That's the sentence that I disagree with. I do not think that that's what's happening at all. He's not returning to the far more ample scale of the Book of Lost Tales. He is returning to a far more ample scale than the Book of Lost Tales. Yes, the Book of Lost Tales is much more ample than the Quintus Silmarillion, but it ain't the Book of Lost Tales that he's going back to, in my opinion, based on what we see of his later writings. Nor in style is it like the Book of Lost Tales. Nor it's instead, it's like the Lord of the Rings itself, right? I don't think it's the Book of Lost. I don't think he's being like, hey, I want to. I want to set the clock back 40 years and re- rediscover the Book of Lost Tales. It's not like the Book of Lost Tales at all, in my opinion. Um, okay, I can't say at all. There are some similarities, obviously, but um, but no, it seems much more like him saying, I want to do a Lord of the Rings style, detailed, immediate, meaning you're immediately there perceiving the action instead of just hearing about you know uh, uh, some... Uh, um, you know, some historian talk about it from a distance, right? Um, and dramatic form. You're watching it unfold in front of you as you read the narrative, like The Lord of the Rings. Um, and of course, we saw this, I think, pretty clearly uh, in The Nature of Middle-Earth, right? All that world-building stuff that he's doing, all, the, all that math, right, and everything else. Um, he is one. He is doing the kind of world building for the Silmarillion that he did for the Lord of the Rings. He is, in the end, writing a kind of narrative like the Lord of the Rings, not like the Book of Lost Tales, but like the Lord of the Rings. Um, again, in my opinion, um, and for this reason, I am not at all sure that the completion of the Quintus Silmarillion remained a name. Christopher says that, and you know, who am I? I mean, I, I'm sure his dad told him that there are places where his dad seems to write that. I believe there are days on which his dad believed that, right. You know, that when you, if you asked 
you know, Tolkien in 1960, what is the published Silmarillion going to look like? He may well have said, yeah, we're going to have the annals. We're going to have the Quintus Silmarillion. Uh, you know, we're going to have all the, it's going to be great. Except it's not going to be re- really a, you know, uh, can't possibly fit into one volume. It'll be probably, you know, seven or ten volumes or maybe twelve. Who knows? Um, uh, yeah, I think that's... Uh, uh, so he, he may well have said that. He, Tolkien himself may well even have believed that, but I think the evidence is that is not the direction that Tolkien is going. And we never, in fact, see him returning to that kind of melodious, grave, elegiac burden with a sense of loss and distance in time kind of narrative as much as Christopher, I think, wants him to, right? Um, and wishes that he did. And by the way he organizes the book when Christo- when he, Christopher, publishes it, almost makes it look like he did, right? Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, I think he's headed... I think he's going way deeper than the Book of Lost Tales. And in fact, it's going to be the rabbit hole from which he will never emerge. Um, and why the published Silmarillion could not, po- why the Silmarillion could not possibly be completed according to Tolkien's later plan. Um, okay. Anyway, now we get to the typescript of the Lost Apocalypse. And the typescript of the Lost Apocalypse has revisions on it. It's there. And he's made notes about how that text might be revised. Um, what are some examples of these? Well, there were a couple of these that um, uh, really made me sit up straight. Here are two. Turin Turambar, coming from the halls of Mandos, right, this is one of the big... Uh, features of this apocalypse gets changed to Turing Turambar returning from the doom of men at the ending of the world. Okay, so coming from the halls of Mandos, like that suggests in the earlier 1937 version of this, he was only imagined Turing Turambar remaining in purgatory until the end, right? Now... Instead of saying, okay, I've kind of thought through this theology a little bit more, and I'm like, no, I don't think Turin should come back. That really, no, let's not do that, right? That is not what he says in the margins of this typescript. And instead, he changes it to returning from the doom of men at the ending of the world. Um, so he's died and gone to wherever it is that men go, not just in the halls of waiting, Right, not just the purgatorial halls of waiting in Mandos, but um, the doom of men at the end of the world. Yeah, so Scott, this is a straight up, complete, 100% resurrection that he's now describing. So he's not just, you know, stamping Turin's resurrection with approval, he is doubling down on it. That's how I read this revision in any case. But wait, there's more. In the margin of the manuscript, my father wrote, and Baron Kemlost, without direction for its insertion. Okay, so Turin is going to be resurrected and is going to fight against and presumably kill Morgoth in the last battle, and Baron is going to be his wingman, also being resurrected from death. Okay. 
Um, there are two things that I have to say about this. First, what? Secondly, um, I am now 100% convinced that I was right. Um, exploring the Lord of the Rings fan, you will remember our discussions at the end of the Council of Elrond. Um, when I was talking about this realization that I had out of the blue, um, how I'd never really understood the passage where Elrond puts Frodo in the category, like he points to Turin and Baron as the two examples of elf friends that, um, uh, that, that he's going to be like, right? Um, and I was like, why? Like, again, Baron, totally logical. Like, if you're going to make a list of, like, the top three elf friends ever, Baron totally belongs on the list. But Turin, he's, like, you know, a big story, but he is a complicated member of the elf friend club, right? I mean, talk about somebody who probably has had his membership revoked to the elf friend club in, in, some, uh, in some instances. Um, let's just say the vote to retain Turin's membership in the Elf Friend Club would probably not be unanimous. That's all I'm saying about Turin. And um, so why does he go there? And that the sudden realization that I had was I was remembering the Lost Apocalypse and saying, oh man, of course. The, t the thing that Turin and Baron have in common is that both of them like defied Morgoth himself to his face. Baron in Morgoth's own throne room, right? Taking the Silmaril off his crown uh, with a great deal of help, obviously, from his girlfriend, not trying to downplay that at all. Um, and then Turin in the Dagor Dagoroth when he kills Morgoth himself, right? Um, that Elrond is, is saying that Frodo is parallel to Turin and to Baron in that way. And the addition, making Baron Camlost Turin Turimbar's wingman uh, in his killing of Morgoth in the apocalypse here, um, makes that connection, I think, even stronger. Even stronger. Um, uh, how does Elrond know what Turin will do at the end of time? Well, Yarrow, this text would have existed, right? I mean, it's like a prophecy, this text. Um, it's not written from the perspective of after the end of time. It's a, it's a prophecy. Um, it's a prophecy which, with which Elrond would be familiar, basically, presumably. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway, so, okay. Uh, so that was my first, so my, my, my first reaction was what the heck. My second reaction was, oh man. Yeah. Uh, Frodo at the end of the council of Elrond, a hundred percent. Um, this edition, by the way, the end Baron Camlost edition in the margin at this passage, almost certainly post-dates, I say almost certainly, listen to me, uh, based on what Christopher has told us here, it seems that it post-dates the writing of the Lord of the Rings. It's from this 50s, 1950s period, right? Um, but that again suggests that he's, you know, like he comes to this and he's like, yeah, I want to, I want to, I want to bring Baron in here too, right? To make that even stronger. Um, and, um, Bricktails, I love the idea that Frodo will be there too, right? So there's Turin and Baron and Frodo, right? Uh, uh, the, the three of them opposing, uh, opposing Morgoth at the end. Um, 
But um, yeah, so anyhow, okay. Um, the next paragraph. And she will break them, the Silmarils, and with their fire rekindle the two trees, as Giovanna, I believe, originally. Um, this was amended on the carbon copy of the typescript only to, and he, Feanor, will break them, and with their fire, Yavanna will rekindle the two trees. Um, so in the original version, Feanor, he just gives them up. He hands them over. They're collected again. Feanor's like, hooray, I have the Silmarils back. Okay, you can have them. Um, go ahead and break them and restore the trees. And then Yavanna takes them and, and breaks them. Um, he strengthens that again. He said, no, no, no. Feanor isn't just going to hand them over. He's going to break them himself. Uh, which makes a little sense anyway, because, like, if anyone would know how to break them open, it would be Feanor, presumably, right? Um, uh, whereas, like, what's Yavanna going to do, right? Is she going to, like, whip out a, you know, hey, uh, hey, honey, can I borrow your hammer? I need to whack open these, um, you know, the, these, uh, these, these jewels here. Probably not. Um, but in any case, it makes more emphatic Feanor's choice and Feanor's sacrifice, right? That he's going to break the Silmarils with his own hands. And with them, with their fire, Yovana will rekindle the two trees. So, point is, it makes it, um, um, it makes it sound like you know, these revisions seem to suggest when Tolkien comes to this passage in 1957 or 58, whenever it is, instead of looking at this passage and being like, whew, yeah, this will not do at all, right? Um, yeah, I remember writing this 20 years ago. That was kind of fun, but yeah, no, that like, the version of what's going to happen at the end of the world and the art of remade and stuff from the Athrobeth so much cooler than this, right? So let's just um, push the end of the old Quenta aside, you know, the prophecy aside, and um, uh, pr just pretend that didn't happen, right? That is apparently not Tolkien's response. Tolkien instead goes through and, and makes revisions on it like this. So the big question, the burning question, is: Does Tolkien then still is this is this is this true? Then is Tolkien still holding this to be an accurate prophecy of the end? Is this in fact still in 1958 how Tolkien sees the legendarium, the history of the legendarium ending? Is he endorsing this as still part? of the story. He's not moved on from it at all. That's the burning question. Now, Christopher does not hold that this remains part of his father's vision for the legendarium. You can tell that perfectly clearly because he did not include it in the published Silmarillion and certainly might have done. Uh, the This, you know, according to um, according to the editorial principles that he's using in the published Silmarillion, there's no reason not to include it. It's a fully written text. Um, I, you know, like it's, 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 I mean, it's later than some of the other texts he does include, uh, you know, as far as its data composition. So he totally, totally could have included it, but he chose not to include it. How can he justify that? Isn't this evidence that in 1958 Tolkien was still endorsing this and seeing it as part of his 
of his, of the ending of the story or seeing it as the ending of the story. Here's Christopher's explanation. I said of this text in volume five, the very fact that the end of the Silmarillion still took this form when the Lord of the Rings was begun is sufficiently remarkable. It seems much more remarkable, he goes on to say here, and not easy to interpret, that my father was treating it as a text requiring only minor and particular revision at this much later time. Because, yeah, so like they're, they're, um, you can, you could draw not only the conclusion that he had not rejected it, but you could say not only did he not reject it, he loves it. I mean, look at that. He barely changed anything. He made just like a handful of notes on this text. Right. So doesn't that suggest, therefore, that Tolkien gave it a big old stamp of approval? Right. Oh, no, this is great. Put it in practically as is. Right. Would be one way to read his very limited and selective revision of this text when he comes to it in this later Quintus Silmarillion process. Christopher goes on. But his mode of emendation could sometimes be decidedly perfunctory suggesting not a close comparative consideration of an earlier text, so much as a series of dissents on particular points that struck his attention. And it may be that such later emendations as he made in this case are to be regarded rather in that light than as implying any sort of final approval of the content. But this text was peculiar in its inception, jumping forward from the beginning of the story of Turin to the middle of a sentence much further on in the Quenta, and its later history does not diminish its somewhat mysterious nature. Now, that, um, uh, that Christopher <clears throat> does not take a stronger stand on this point, uh, you know, in this place in the text, might possibly seem a little bit evasive on Christopher's part. Um, uh, First, let's make sure we understand what he's saying here. My understanding of what he says when he's talking about his father's decidedly perfunctory emendation mode. Um, do you see what he means by that? He's saying that sometimes it's clear that when his father was reading a typescript, for instance, um, and only making occasional notes, that did not necessarily mean that his father was like, oh, yeah, this is almost perfect. It just needs a few tweaks. Um, he's like, you can see, there are lots of times when you can see that that's not, in fact, the pattern here. What he's doing is he's rereading something that he wrote before, but he can't help himself, right? He still makes notes, even if he's going to reject it, even if he's not going to do anything with it. Um, he can't stop himself from focusing on things. And, you know, he talked about like, and so, sometimes you can see this will be like, a, it'll be like a name thing, right? He'll be reading an older text where as was so often the case, a character had a different name or a different spelled name, right? Like uh, um, instead of Finway, it was Finweg uh, with a G, right? Or, um, uh, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, no, wait. Or was Finweg Fingen's original name? I'm forgetting now. This is Book of Lost Tales stuff. Uh, but anyway, um, just to cite one example, or the more recent example of uh, the character who is named Finrod, having his name changed to Finarfin, and Inglor being changed to Finrod. Um, so sometimes Christopher says uh, he'll just be kind of skimming along and reading, rereading a story that he wrote earlier on, and he'll still make notes on the changes of the names. And that doesn't mean 
that he's planning to use the text. It just means that he's a little bit OCD and very perfectionist and doesn't let these things go, right? Um, that would seem to me, for instance, uh, to explain the reference to Feanor in the previous passage, right? Um, like, that is, I could see him reading this section, not planning to use it, right? Even if he were still rejecting it, but just reading it as a story that existed before and getting to that point where it says that Yavanna breaks the Silmarils and he just starts twitching, right? He can't help himself. He's like, no, wait a second. Yavanna wouldn't break the Silmarils. How's Yavanna going to break the Silmarils, right? That's not our thing, right? Oh, no, it'd be way cooler if Feanor broke them himself, right? That would really convey more perfectly what I was trying to get at in this passage. Not that I care about this passage anymore, but if I did care, that's how I would change it, right? Um, to me, I, I am perfectly willing to believe that Tolkien, in fact, had that approach. That Tolkien could not reread something he had written before, no matter what his current relationship was with it, without a pen in his hand um, and passing over mistakes or things that he thought were incomplete or whatever without altering them seems to me perfectly plausible. The question then becomes, what reason does Christopher have of, um, what reason does Christopher have for lumping this text into the category of things that although he did revise, that doesn't mean he didn't reject it. He still rejected it. Like, why does Christopher seem to remain confident that Tolkien had rejected this narrative despite the fact that he's revised it later on. And um, it seems to me very likely, uh, though he doesn't say it here. He doesn't say, um, Dad absolutely told me that this prophecy passage was out. He doesn't say that. Sometimes he does say things like that. Um, but, um, though never in that tone, he's always very proper about it. Um, but that seems to me a, certainly a very plausible theory, um, why Christopher doesn't even entertain this idea. Like, basically I can see three explanations, uh, for Christopher's, for what Christopher has written here. Explanation number one. Tolkien told him in no uncertain terms as they were working on the revisions to the Silmarillion in the years before uh, Tolkien's death. Tolkien told Christopher, yeah, that prophecy thing, that's, that, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. I'm, I'm, I'm ditching that. Uh, and Christopher's like, okay, ditching the prophecy, noted. And so when he comes to it, he doesn't include it. Um, and, but being a thorough scholar does not conceal the fact that his father did make revisions to it here in 1957 and then is like, yep, kind of a mystery, isn't it? Why he would do that, given that he was ditching it. That's one possible reading of the situation. The second possible reading of the situation uh, is that Christopher... I'm forgetting my the three I had in my head. The second reading would be Christopher's wrong. Right? That he thought, for whatever reason, that the prophecy should not be in the text. Um, and so just, like, cut it. And then comes to this later on and realizes that he might have been wrong, but doesn't admit that he was wrong, right? 
And instead of saying, yeah, I pretty much screwed that one up. Um, this really probably should have been in the published Silmarillion, my bad. Instead, he's just like, it has a somewhat mysterious nature. Let's move on. Um, uh, okay, so um, that's possible. That's a possible reading. Just that, that Christopher simply messed up when he chose not to include it in the published Silmarillion. He didn't, had like not even maybe stumbled across this revised text and now was like, oops, except didn't admit it. That seems to me a much less plausible, um, a much less plausible explanation because Christopher often does that. Like he often admits mistakes. Um, there are numerous occasions in the history of Middle-earth in which he says, yeah, wow, this text had not, I had not found this piece of paper. And when I did, I'm like, shoot, I really, that's, that's not how it should have been at all in the published Silmarillion. I'm sorry about that. Um, like he'll own that when that happens. Um, I don't see why he wouldn't own this in, you know, in, in, in some way. I mean, the only, um, motivation I could see for him not owning that, for him breaking his pattern of owning that kind of mistake, um, is, uh, would be what, like him doing something underhanded, you know, right? Or like his, like, basically if he, um, and because he doesn't say that his dad definitely told him. So like, what does that mean? Does this just mean that Christopher himself disliked the prophecy? And so like, there was like a one man conspiracy to suppress the, the prophecy. And he's like, I'm not even sorry I did it. Right. Uh, because I meant to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, that feels a little weird to me. Like, I just, I don't really buy that. Um, though, by the way, as I said at the beginning, if Christopher had that judgment, I'd kind of agree with him, right? I don't think he'd be wrong. Like, I don't think the prophecy fits either. Um, if somebody had handed, you know, had, if somebody had backed up the truck to my house with all of Tolkien's papers in it and said, publish the Silmarillion, um, I don't think I would have included the the prophecy, uh, you know, maybe in an appendix or something like that. But that's not what Christopher wanted the Silmarillion to be. No footnotes, no appendices. Um, but um, anyway, so I, I um, yeah, that's um, to me. So I've got my what my third reading was. There was a third one, but I can't remember what it was now. Um, I think the first option is more likely, honestly. Um, that he, I guess the third option was Christopher chose to cut it, not because his father told him, but just because his own literary judgment told him that it didn't fit. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, I think that was the third one. Um, in which case, like it's a judgment call. And I don't, I, I, I agree with him that I don't necessarily believe that Tolkien's revisions on this manuscript necessarily mean, necessarily constitute proof that Tolkien was still double endorsing this passage and fully meant to, and that like, therefore Christopher has done violence to his father's vision for the end of this. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, so anyhow, um, the end. <laughs> Let's go on. Let's go on 
to the wanderings of Hurin and try to figure out what's going on here. So you'll remember at the end of the Grey Annals, the end of the Grey the the Annals, the Grey Annals ended very abruptly, right before the inscription to the on the stone, right on the tombstone of uh, of of uh, Turin and Neonor could be given, right? It was like, you know, on which was inscribed, colon, and that was it, right? Um, and then, of course, he goes back and later on adds it. You know, he, so he wrote on the, on that bottom of that page, he wrote the inscription and the, the final bit that we get in the published Silmarillion. So, like, what the heck was going on with that page? Why did it end so abruptly and then get the last bit added on? And even with the last bit added on, added on the end is still a bit abrupt, right? What was going on there? So Christopher comes back to that mystery here in the beginnings of the, of the wanderings of Hurin. Um, I have described how the manuscript of the Grey Annals ends with strange abruptness at the foot of a page and said that it always seemed to me strange that my father should have abandoned the Grey Annals where he did without at least writing the inscription that was carved on the stone. At some time later, he entered roughly on the manuscript, the inscription of the stone, and the words and the words of conclusion to the tale derived from the last part of the Narn. Uh, the Narn, remember, that's the longer version. Uh, that's the the 1951 version. That's like the I, the Children of Hurin version, right? Um, uh, okay. Uh, the explanation of this was simple. When I discovered, misplaced among miscellaneous papers, manuscript pages that are very obviously the continuation of the Grey Annals. The first of these pages is indeed numbered continuously with the last page of the main manuscript. This continuation, it is plain, was already lost in my father's lifetime. So Tolkien himself separated those last pages out and then lost them. This, uh, right, okay. The original conclusion was in fact exactly as in the addition made to the Grey Annals when he presumed the original ending lost. So he separates off the last pages of the Grey Annals, loses them, goes back to the Grey Annals and is like, the heck, this ends in the middle of a sentence, right? And so he's like, but I remember how it goes. And he writes the inscription and he writes the conclusion onto it, right? That's apparently what happened. Um... So again, the original conclusion was in fact exactly as in the edition made to the Grey Annals when he presumed the original ending lost, except that the title of the work was then Glair Niachin Hurin, as in the Narn. Subsequently, my father had added the words and was made by men, as in the conclusion added to the Grey Annals, and later again he changed the title to Narnihin Hurin, as he did also in the Narn. Okay, so the question. Why, why, what happened? Right, what happened here? There is one important thing, it seems to me. So again, what I want to do, one of the questions that I am very interested in, and I hope you're a little bit interested in it too, because if not, I've been boring you frightfully for weeks now. Um, uh, but um, the thing that I'm really interested in trying to trace and to figure out here is, as I've said before, what Tolkien thought he was doing. Right. What when he's working on the Silmarillion stuff, what form is that going to be in? What are the relationship, you know, the Annals, the Quenta, the other, the Great Tales? Like, what is the relationship among all these things? Originally, the end of the uh, Turin story, which remember, we get the whole Turin story pretty much in the Grey Annals. 
until it gets to the end. When he was originally writing the Grey Annals, he keeps writing multiple pages after uh, the uh, the death of Turin and the you know writing of the inscription that gets briefly lost. Right? Um, he keeps writing. In fact, he goes on to begin the story of the wanderings of Hurin after Hurin's release. The story of Turin, the story of the house of, of, of Hurin is not over with the death of Turin and Neonor and the erection of their tombstone, and it's not even over uh, with the death of Morwen, which gets kind of tacked onto it, right? Um, it's not over until Hurin is done. Because we're going to come back. He now wants to tell a whole new Hurin story. Um, I say new. It was envisioned back in the Book of Lost Tales. Like, it's not an entirely... There are new elements to it. But the the fact that he's going to tell a fuller version of what Hurin does when he's released from Angband is, was, was, was there from the original, from the, from the Book of Lost Tales on. Um, so it's not a brand new concept. But there are definitely new things about it. So... He's writing the Grey Annals. He gets to the end of the Turin story and he keeps on going. But then, not only does he stop, when he stops, he apparently separates out those final pages. He takes he takes the last, I forget how many it was, seven pages, something like that, right? He takes those out and he puts them in a different drawer or whatever and loses them, right? Loses track of them, doesn't know where they are. Um, the loss, whatever, that can easily happen. <laughs> I certainly would have lost him, probably. Um, but he, why did he separate it? That, to me, that's the interesting question. There was an impulse that led him to take those pages and put them in a, in a completely different pile. What that tells me is that once he began the wanderings of Hurin, he began to say to himself, this is a different work. This isn't the annals anymore. This is not just a continuation of the annals and I'm going to lose it, right? Um, now, it's possible that he was just like, let me put the whole stack of the annals papers in one place and I'll just keep the last few and keep on working on them and it's still going to be the annals. It's possible that that's what happened. But with that combined with the other evidence that we get about the wanderings, the wanderings of Hurin papers... Uh, and the multiple new manuscripts and things that he begins for this. To me, the loss of these last pages suggests that he, his initial impulse was to cut them out. Not to remove them, not to ditch them by any means, but instead to say, no, this is not the end of the Grey Annals. This is the beginning of another work. Um, I want to do a whole thing about the wanderings of Hurin. Um, in fact, it seems to me, that he is obeying that impulse, the same impulse that led him to write the Narn in the first place, right in 1950 or 51, whenever it was that he sat down to do the Narn, the, the extended version of um, uh, of the you know of the unexpurgated, it's still expurgated. The, the, let's just go with longer, the longer version of the story of Turin Turambar, right? The impulse that led him to to write that, the Narn, um, the Children of Hurin version, the same impulse that led him to begin, though alas not to finish, the extended tour story. Um, that same impulse seems to be leading him to take the end of the Grey Annals and say, oh no, there's more here. I'm going to write a whole novella 
about Hurin after his release. Um, and uh, that's my, that's my suspicion. Based on what Christopher's telling us, that's my suspicion of what's going on here um, at the end of the Grey Annals. Okay. Um, let's look at a few things from the text itself. Uh, this, this is from these pages uh, that, got, that get abandoned. Then we'll come back to the textual situation in a little bit. None that had known him, this is Hurin, of course, uh, none that had known him in youth could mistake him still, though he had grown grim to look on. His hair and beard were white and long, but there was a fell light in his eyes. He walked unbowed, and yet carried a great black staff, but he was girt with his sword. Great wonder and dread fell on the land when it was noised in Hithlam that the Lord Hurin had returned. The Easterlings were dismayed, fearing that their master would prove faithless again and give back the land to the Westrons, and that they would be enslaved in their turn, for watchmen had reported that Hurin came out of Angband. Uh, and then I'm skipping a little bit. Thus freedom only increased the bitterness of Hurin's heart, for even had he so wished, he could not have roused any rebellion against the new lords of the land. Uh, the bit I skipped was about how nobody trusts him because... Uh, his own people don't trust him because, A, um, it looks like Morgoth set him free on purpose and gave him an, an honor guard, and that's a bad look. Uh, the optics pretty bad on his arrival in Dor Loman. And secondly, because they have a standing policy not to trust anybody has escaped from Angband in the first place, uh, as is told in the published Silmarillion. Um, okay, so, thus only... Thus freedom only increased the bitterness of Hurin's heart, for even had he so wished, he could not have roused any rebellion against the new lords of the land, that is, the Easterlings, or the Eastrons, uh, as he calls them. All the following that he gathered was a small company of the homeless men and outlaws that lurked in the hills. But they had done no great deed against the incomers since the passing of Turin some five years before. Um, so some of these uh, uh, are the ones who fought with Turin when Turin killed Broda, uh, you know, in the one sort of strike back against the Easterlings that we know of. Um, on the one hand, Hurin's um, gathering a small company of homeless men and outlaws should sound a bit ominous, right? Um that is, it should remind us of Hurin gathering a small company of homeless men and outlaws that lurked in the hills, right? That's been done before. Um, and this, of course, was, you know, Hurin's um, not-so-very-merry men, right, um, who end up on Amonruth with him, um, but who originally are brigands and outlaws who are killing and robbing everybody, right, including... Um, elves and men, as well as orcs. Um, so um, Hurin gathers his even less merry men uh, right from the hills uh, around Dor Loman. Um, but again, it, it feels ominous. It feels ominous. Uh, the parallelism feels a little bit ominous here. Um, is he going to be redeeming them? Is this, you know, is he heading on questionable courses like his son was heading on questionable courses? Um, one of the other things that really struck me in this passage um, is the fell light in his eyes. Do you notice that? 
there was a fell light in his eyes. It could have been worse. There could have been a pale light in his eyes, in which case I'd have been really alarmed, right? Um, you can have a fell light in your eyes and it's okay. You're just in a really bad mood. Um, a fell light just means you're liable to kill somebody, right? Or even that you're looking to kill somebody. Um, but the thing that... Um, uh, the thing that really struck me here in this context about the fell light in his eyes, it's, it's Hurin's eyes, right? His eyes, which have been the focal point of Morgoth's curse for 20, what, 27 years, 28 years, um, his eyes have been cursed by Morgoth, not only so that he will he will see all of the horrible things that happened to his family and all of the ways in which Morgoth's curse is visited upon those that he love, but also so that he will see everything twisted. Um, there were good things, right? We're, we're told there are like, uh, you know, some of the nice things that Turin accomplished, which happened at least temporarily. Um, Hurin didn't see those, right? His eyes were kept from seeing the good things that Turin did or the good things that were accomplished by Turin's deeds because of the, the curse that's laid on him and on his eyes specifically, right? So there was a fell light in his eyes is a really powerful reminder. It's, it is, of course, on the one hand, merely an expression of his mood, right? A way, um, a fairly, fairly common way in which Tolkien talks about the... Um, the mood of, uh, of, of, of one of his characters. Um, but, um, uh, yeah. Um, but I think in this case, it has this overlay, right? And it makes me think of the pale light that we see in Gollum's eyes, right? When Stinker is, uh, is speaking, um, the pale light in Gollum's eyes that correlates with murderous intention and anger uh, and really suggests to me that although uh, if you remember am I remembering correctly? Could somebody look this up? Fellowship of the Ring um, no it doesn't say fell light Sam has a light in his eyes that would make Ted Sandyman step back if he saw it when he kills his first orc right? Um, I think Sam's that light in Sam's eyes in uh, the chamber of Mazarbel there was uh was i think pretty pretty fell right that probably probably is it was a reasonably fell light in sam's eyes there so again it's it, without the context it would be possible to interpret this as just like again he is um you know hurin is um you know he's come to dor Loman to uh, you know, to kick butt and take names, and he's all done taking names. Um, but I think there's more, and that, that's true, but I think there's more to it than that, right? Um, and I think, I think we're supposed to remember that overlay, because that's going to be one of the themes of what is going to be happening with Hurin uh, throughout his wanderings. He is still seeing things crooked, even though he's been released. Um... Okay, so 
Oh, the incomers. Sorry, uh, they had done no great deed against the incomers. Those would be the Easterlings, uh, the Easterlings who have come into Dor Loman and taken it over uh, by Morgoth. And notice how distrustful they are, right? The Easterlings. They're all like, oh, man, are we getting the shaft again by Morgoth, right? Worst deal we ever made. Um, okay. And then similarly, we have the exchange um, between... Lorgan, the lord of uh, the new Easterling lord of Dorloman, um, and Hurin, when Hurin comes to him. Fear not, he said. I should have needed no companions if I had to fight with you. I love that. <laughs> First of all, there it is. Thank you, Sarah, for finding the passage. A fire was, okay, it's a fire, it's not a light. A fire was smoldering in his brown eyes that would have made Ted Sandyman, Ted Sandyman step backwards if he had seen it. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's similar. It's it's not the same. It's not the same phrasing. So, okay. Yeah, good. Good. Um, interesting. Bricktail says that um, in the two towers, we get a fell light in the swamps, in the marshes, uh, and from Shelob. There's a fell light in her eyes. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, associated in both cases with death and darkness then, right? Um, if the light in Hurin's eyes is uh, only comparable to the light in Shelob's eyes, that's uh, that's not a good look. Okay. Anyway. Anyway, I love Hurin's statement here at the beginning. Um, he comes with his, you know, little um, uh, outlaw band, right? Hurin and his grim men. Uh, so he shows up with his grim men, uh, and, uh, he, and they start like manning the walls, right? They think that he's going to attack them. And his, his, uh, his brag is phenomenal. Uh, fear not. I should have needed no companions if I had come to fight with you. It's like, you can tell I'm not going to attack you. Cause if I were going to attack you, I wouldn't have brought an army. I'd have just come myself. <laughs> phenomenal so good so good anyway okay all right um i i am come only to take leave of the lord of the land i have no liking for it anymore since you have defiled it hold it while you may until your master recalls you to the slave tasks that fit you better so i didn't come to fight you i only came to insult you then Lorgan was not ill-pleased to think that he would so soon and easily be rid of the fear of Hurin without crossing the will of Angband, and he came forward. You can see that Lorgan has been in a, a sticky place, right? On the one hand, um, Hurin has returned. So like the, the long-lost king of the people that he has displaced and, and enslaved has returned, and that can't be good, right? I mean, if ever the people of Dor Loman were going to rebel against his control. It's going to be now because their King Hurin has returned. I mean, good grief. Um, that's not good. Um, uh, but wait, hang on. It's worse. If it were just that, right. If he had just come back from like whatever, some random place, right. He'd been off on a really long vacation and returned. Then at least Lorgon could hunt him down and try to destroy him. Right. But Lorgon's in a pickle. Because um, Lorgan's in a pickle because the lord of his of the displaced and enslaved people uh, 
was sent here by Morgoth, apparently. So if he does the only obvious and prudent thing, which is to kill Hurin and prevent any incipient uprising among the people of Dor Lomen, um, he might get in trouble from Morgoth because apparently this guy works for Morgoth. So what the heck is he supposed to do, right? Here's Lorgan in, in an impossible position. So his first reaction to being insulted is like, oh, phew. Okay, I thought I, I thought I was going to be screwed one way or the other, right? Either by a slave rebellion or by Morgoth, and there was nothing I could do about it because I couldn't even fight you. Man. Okay. As you will, friend, he said. This is Lorgan now speaking. I have done you no ill and have let you be. And of this, I hope you will bring a true tale if you come again to the master. Right. So uh, tell Morgoth I didn't mess with you. Can we can we, can we agree on that? Hurin eyed him in wrath. Friend me not, thrall and churl, he said, and believe not the lies that I have heard, that I have ever entered into the service of the enemy. Of the Adine am I, and so remain, and there shall be no friendship between mine and yours forever. Friend me not. I love that. Um, I, I, um, I would have been super tempted to, you know, have a button programmed for that you know, on Facebook, to be perfectly frank. Um, uh, could use it on LinkedIn, too. Friend me not. I wouldn't add the thrall and churl, because that would just be rude. Um, but anyway, uh, Hurin is... <laughs> uh, the defiance of Hurin is like a marvelous little subgenre that Tolkien's really good at. Um, Hurin gets the best defiant speeches. Um, then hearing that Hurin had not after all the favor of Morgoth, or forswore it, many of Lorgan's men drew their swords to put an end to him. Hey, he's safe to kill. Let's take care of business. But Lorgan restrained them, for he was wary and more cunning and wicked than the others, and quicker, therefore, to guess at the purposes of the master. This is a chilling ending of this little story of this little exchange, right? That Lorgan does not kill Hurin because he now sees, right? You see Lorgan's reasoning? Okay, Hurin came from Angband. He was re clearly released from Angband. He didn't escape. He didn't come running on his own, right? Um, you know, helpless and starved in whatever, like he broke out of prison, right? He came escorted from Angband. So, Morgoth knows he's here, clearly. And yet, here's Hurin saying, I have never entered the service of the enemy. Um, so, what happened then? And Lorgan is quick enough, to, is, knows Morgoth well enough to say, oh, there's some kind of advanced scheme of torture going on here, right? Um, he is not serving Morgoth but Morgoth wanted him to be here. So um, don't kill him. Don't kill him. We still might get in trouble if we kill him. Right? He knows Morgoth well enough to know that Morgoth wants Hurin to survive and wander around. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. A really... So I... One other thing to notice about this passage going back to the sort of metatextual level. Notice the register at which he's writing here. This is not written like the Quenta, surely. Um, 
some of the annals is kind of like this. Um, but it's not even, it's even more, uh, uh, what was that phrase, Christopher? Um, uh, um, more detailed, immediate, and dramatic. That's, that's it. Um, did you notice how uh, detailed, immediate, and dramatic this narrative is? is right? Um, this is, I think we can see Tolkien beginning to, to, to write, or at least to consider writing, something more in the novella mode, right? Something more novel length. Not a novel, but something sort of novel length. Um, okay. Now, we come to the end of those pages. The pages, the last pages of what had been the gray annals that he separated out. Um, and we get Tolkien brainstorming. Love Tolkien brainstorming. More likely is it that he was drawn thither to discover news of Turin. To Brethel he would not yet come, nor to Doriath. This is a, a, um, a Thangoradrim, I almost said. Nargothrond. Uh, um, Nargothrond that he uh, uh, is talking about where, where that's the thither to which Hurin is being drawn he went first seeking a way into Gondolin and the friendship of Turgon which indeed would have been great but he found it not his doom was unwilling for Morgoth's curse was ever upon him still and moreover since the near knife Turgon had expended every art upon the, upon the hiding of his realm it was then that Hurin finding, and that's where he stops. So, uh, before we continue to his notes, notice the way that he talks about Morgoth's curse. Um, two things. First, he says, his doom was unwilling, for Morgoth's curse was ever upon him still. What is that talking about? It's talking about the finding of Gondolin. He went for seeking away into Gondolin, but he found it not. His doom was unwilling. Unwilling that he, Hurin, should find Gondolin. Okay, several things here. First, notice that Hurin's doom and Morgoth's curse are not the same thing, I think. His doom was unwilling, for Morgoth's curse was ever upon him still. It's possible that the parenthetical is just explaining what, what doom? Ah, yeah, Morgoth's curse. So you could you could make the argument that he is in fact here identifying Hurin's doom with Morgoth's curse, but I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. He is um, his doom, the destiny of Hurin. Um, I think is one thing. And Morgoth's curse is another. The tunes to him um, is, you know, his doom. I, I would um, loosely, if I had to translate that, I would translate that as his destiny. Um, it's certainly heavily influenced by Morgoth's curse. That's what we're being told. For Morgoth's curse was ever upon him still. Um, he is being influenced. The, the outcomes of what he does are still being influenced by Morgoth's curse. But I do not believe that Morgoth's curse is solely responsible for his doom. The other thing about his doom here. Notice that um, 
so it's possible. Bricktails asks a very sensible question. Could doom uh, be instead translated as something like choice here? His, like the choice that he made. I don't think so. And here's why. Um, doom is the subject of the verb. The, his doom was unwilling. That is, his doom isn't a choice. His doom is choosing. You see, his doom is making a choice. Why, why couldn't he find it? Why couldn't he find Gondolin? Eh, his doom didn't want him to. Right? His doom didn't want him to find Gondolin is literally what that sentence says. His doom was unwilling. It's like his doom, the destiny of Hurin, has agency here and is making choices. Now, obviously, this is sort of a manner of speaking, right? Um, I don't think that his doom is sort of a, 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 a conscious character that's like making choices and forcing things necessarily. It's a way of describing, you know, after the fact, right? But that's why I think doom is definitely destiny here and not choice. Um, he, it does not say, you know, his doom was fateful or like, you know, his doom was, um, you know, as if, as if it meant his choice. Like his choice was significant in some way or other, right? Is not what is being said. Instead, it is saying his doom was unwilling that this should happen to him. The way that his, pa his, his path was not laid that way. And so, therefore, it didn't happen. Whether he wanted it to, he did want it to happen. He did choose to try to find Gondolin. It wasn't happening, right? Um, so, uh, the doom of Hurin, the destiny of Hurin, in which the curse of Morgoth is entangled, for sure, uh, because it's ever upon him still, um, is... Uh, in the characterization of this sort of narrative frame driving the bus here. And I think that I thought that was a really, really interesting construction. Um, okay. But anyway, he stopped. It was then that Hurin finding, and I'm guessing he was going to say, you know, f like finding the way shut to Gondolin or something, um, uh, you know, did something else, but whatever. Anyway, here the text stops abruptly, but on the same page and clearly at the same time, my father wrote the following. So Tolkien stops writing narrative in the middle of this sentence and starts writing notes. Love this. He did this all the time in writing The Lord of the Rings, right? Um, okay. Hurin goes to seek Gondolin, fails, passes by Brethel, and his anguish is increased. They will not admit him, saying that the Halathrim do not wish any more to become enmeshed in the shadow of his kin. But placeholder, new lord, gives the dragon helm to Hurin. His heart is hot against Thingol. He passes it, Doriath, by, and goes on to Nargothrond. Why? To seek news, plunder. He had been an admirer of Felagund. News of the fall of Nargothrond came to the sons of Feanor and dismayed Mithros, but did not at all displease Celegorn and Curifin. But when the news of the dragon's fall was heard, then many wondered concerning its horde and who was the master. Some orc lord, men thought, but the dwarves of something or other. How did Meme find it? He must come of a different race. Okay. Um, we see Tolkien, as I said, do this a lot in the history of the Lord of the Rings. Um, when he... 
uh, is trying to figure out what's going to happen next, right? Um, notice he's doing a sort of outline, but it's not exactly an outline so much as a summary projection, right? Um, here's what's going to happen next with Hurin. He's going to fail to get into Gondolin. He's going to try to get into Brethel. They're going to they're going to bounce him at the border, right? But he's going to get the Dragon Helm. Remember all those notes in the margin of I think it was the Quenta, um, when he was trying to figure out like, oh, hang on, I got We got to figure out what to do with the Dragon Helm, right? He was trying to trace the movements of the Dragon Helm, and it ended up in Brethel, um, and uh, and he was trying to figure out how to dispose of it. Well, here, here you go. Um, uh, he's going to get the dragon helm uh, from the folks in 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 Brethel. Um, he's mad at Thingol, so he's not going to go to Doriath. Instead, he's going to go to Nargothrond, um, including this what Christopher says is a brand new idea that he'd been, you know, an admirer of 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 Finrod's. Um, okay. Now, Fanaro asks the very sensible question, who's left alive to be Lord of the Halethrim? Yeah, because the last we knew was Brandir, you know, the lame, who got killed by Turin at the end of the Turin story, and Hunthor's dead, and Dorlas gets killed, and, like, literally every named uh, character among the woodmen, right, among the, the Halethrim, dies in the Turin story. Um... Isn't that true? I don't think there's a single named character who survives from the from the from from Brethel. I mean, um, anyhow. So, uh, um, notice Feanaro. Um, Tolkien doesn't know. Christopher suggests that's why he put that little carrot in there. Like he's literally saying. But whoever it is, I'll figure that out later. Lord gives the dragon helm to Hurin. That's Christopher's reading of that little note passage there. Um, that Tolkien hasn't worked out who's Lord of the Halathrim yet, but he's got to figure that. We're we're going to come back to this because um, uh, I think it's um, I think it's a really interesting part, and in fact, to me, is a really interesting piece of the puzzle in trying to figure out, again, textually, what's going on here. What is the answer to the question here in The Wanderings of Hurin to my question of what does Tolkien think he's doing? Right. Um, and then we're speculating about the sons of Feanor. Um, Kelgorm and Curafin are uh, totally fine with the fall of Nargothron, right? Those stuck-up jerks had it coming. Um, but now everybody's going all pre-Battle of Five Armies on Nargothrond, right? So the dragon's dead, and there's this unguarded horde there in Nargothrond. Huh. Somebody ought to do something about that, shouldn't they? Right? Um, and notice also that, so Christopher says this might be the, uh, he must come of a different race. Meme must come of a different race. Uh, Christopher suggests this, that par- this paragraph might possibly be the very first origin of the concept of the petty dwarves. We've seen some other uh, references to it on the maps and stuff, especially when we were talking about that. Um, 
but Christopher says this chronologically might be the very first um, origin of the idea that meme meme is one of a uh, different kind of dwarves. Okay, so um, yeah, Fanar, we do see Tolkien giving himself things to figure out here, right? That's what so often happens. Um, it's not a matter of first let me map it out and then follow that map, right? It's let me ask questions. Even he's literally asking questions. Uh, why does he go to Nar- to Nargothrond, right? And he gives three different possible answers to that. To seek news, right? He wants to figure out if, see what he can learn about what actually happened to Turin. Um, for plunder, I mean, there is a whole lot of loot just sitting there, right? Um, and also because, you know, he liked Finrod and wants to go, I don't know what, like, commemorate him or, you know, for whatever he's planning to do in memory of Feligund, um, you know, it it could factor in. Um, so he doesn't know the answer to these questions yet. Again, this is not, um, it's not a prescriptive outline that he's going to then follow. It's more a, let me raise these questions and that'll help me figure out what I need to figure out, right? And then I'll discover it as I go along. Um, But even this method here, again, makes this work, the Wanderings of Hurin, seem to me more like um, writing The Lord of the Rings than like writing The Grey Annals, right? We didn't see stuff like this in The Grey Annals. Um, He knew, you could say, well, he knew where that was headed. Sure, maybe he did, right? But, um, uh, But again, this seems to me like he is fully intending to do a different level of story. Something of the length of the Narn. Um, and something of the length of what the new Tuor story should have been. Right? If he had finished it. Um, but, um, yeah, so we'll see. We'll see a little bit more about how this plays out. Um, I'm going to be bold, quite bold, and say read to the end of The Wanderings of Hurin for next time. Uh, we're out of time now, but read to the end of the wanderings of Hurin, uh, and we'll see how far we can get along um, as we uh, uh, as we sort of look ahead uh, at some of these other things. Again, I'm going to keep asking, coming back to this question: What does Tolkien think he's doing, and how? What evidence can we see um, uh, for that here? So, awesome! Thank you guys very much. Appreciate you being with me as always, and I look forward to our continued discussion next week. Bye now. <laughs>